so good to be back from England and each, uh, to see each of your lovely faces. Welcome to those joining us online from around the world, perhaps even in England, and uh, all to all of our campuses, and to our overflow tent, to our replay, to our acoustic cafe, to our island-style venue, and each and every one of you, I believe God has a message for you, and I'm so glad to see you here today because clearly it means you have survived. Pumpkin Mageddon. <sighs> you guys didn't know your survivors, did you? You see, there was a day not too long ago when pumpkin was reserved primarily for pies. Any fans of pumpkin pie in the room? Yeah, me too. Starbucks got this brilliant idea. Let's put pumpkin in a latte. So a few years ago, they introduced that and they found a glorious success. And they sold so much of it that they moved it from just being reserved to the fall to they moved it from October to September. I believe this year they even started selling it midsummer. You know, pretty soon we're going to have it all year round. And they saw their profit margins increase so much that, of course, other enterprising businesses and uh, products began to say, you know what, we got to get in on this pumpkin spice thing. So then Pringles started uh, turning their chips into pumpkin spice chips. And you've got pumpkin flavored butter and breakfast bars and $500 million increase in profits for anything related to pumpkin spice. 15% increase means that we're just gonna get more and more of this. And now they're starting to mess with things like spam and ramen. And they're asking me to brush my teeth with pumpkin spice flavored toothpaste, I'm sorry. I believe that we have gone too far, that the public needs to rise up and say, enough is enough. What's next? My burritos? My bologna? You guys going to start messing with that too? No, no, we must say no. But of course, you understand anybody that's in marketing, you understand that in order to get the, the public to buy your product, you have to change it and come up with creative ways to get people to continue to buy your product. And there's something that I think those of us that are Christians, we can learn from that. And in regards to the gospel, can you take pumpkin spice too far? Clearly, you can. Can you take the gospel too far? No, you can't. There's still way too many people who have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love how Pastor Wayne puts it. He says, people aren't tired of the gospel. They're tired of tired presentations of the gospel, which is one of the reasons why here at New Hope, one of our values is to be as creative as possible in our presentations of the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And who did we learn that from? Well, we learned that from Jesus himself. You see, he came with one primary message, salvation through him, and yet he presented it in numerous and varied ways. And oftentimes, depending on the crowd, he would form it or package it, the gospel, in a story or what we call a parable. And over the next couple of weeks during our Breaking Ground series, we're going to be studying one of his most famous parables, the parable of the sower. You see, he knew how to reach his audience. They were largely agrarian culture. Uh, many farmers, uh, even if they didn't farm, they were walking through fields. And so he had their attention immediately when he began to share of a glorious heavenly truth in a way that those of us on earth could understand. The crowds began to gather and they picked up on exactly what it is that he was saying. In fact, you can see this with me at the top of your notes in Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 5. Would you read this with me? Ready? Go. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow this seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path 
It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Okay, see, Jesus didn't need pumpkin spice to get the attention of the crowd. Everybody immediately understood what he was talking about. If you weren't working in farming, everyone would have to walk through a field in order to get wherever it is that you were going to go. And that pathway, if you will, through that field was the hardened ground. Because the more that you walk on that path, the harder it gets. So he's talking about this farmer who throws some seed on hardened ground and immediately has someone, uh, some attention. And he begins to talk about four types of soil, the hard ground, and then he began to talk about the rocky ground, and then he began to talk about the weedy ground, and then he talked about the soft soil. And after he told this parable, the, the disciples pulled him over to the side and said, Jesus, we don't really understand what you're talking about. Can you explain this to us? And I love how Jesus says, yes, absolutely. So I want us to all be on the same page as we study this parable together over the next couple of weeks because I believe that God is going to break ground. If we want to see a breakthrough around us, we need to see him break ground within us. And so as he's talking about this parable, he makes it clear that the seed represents scripture or the good news of Jesus Christ. The sower represents the savior or those that the Savior is working through, which is us. He will sow the seed of the gospel through those that believe in him. And then the soils represent our souls, or the condition of our souls, where we are at in terms of our receptivity to the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was so amazing because everybody immediately understood. Here's this farmer. He's taking some seed. He's throwing it in all the different soils. But on this hard ground, what do you see happening here? It's bouncing right off, right? There's nothing going in. That seed is sitting on top because that soil is hard. And if the soil represents the soul, this is the soul of someone who has lived a hard life. They are hardened towards the things of God because life has been hard and they've seen little to no evidence that if there is a God, he even cares about them. Life is hard, so they are hard towards others. Nothing is sinking in. Nothing is going deep. They have no interest in God at all. Now, I've always, I've always heard this message, and I'm very familiar growing up in the church with this. And, and yet, as I began to study it, I began to get God's heart for the hardened heart. And I'm praying that you and I, during our time together, will have God's heart for those who are hardened towards the Lord. Because I believe that's what he's going to do in these last days. He's going to turn the hardened heart towards him and he's going to use us to do it. So as I mentioned, I was in England last week for my master's residency. I got to spend time in Oxford as well as in London. And it was so amazing to be able to see where the epicenter of so much of our church tradition came from in 16th, 17th, and 18th century. And the, to go to the places where the great reformers like Martin Luther or the Wesleys, uh, John and Charles Wesley, where they all started out to see where the great awakening uh, emerged, to see so much thought. And, and then they get to go to one of my heroes, Charles Spurgeon. Now, Charles Spurgeon was, um, when he got saved as a young man, when God softened the soil of his soul, he uh, came to know Christ at the age of 17 and immediately began to preach out in fields and preached on parables like this. So many thousands of people began to gather around because like Jesus, he presented the gospel in such a way that the religious people in his day were not preaching it. And it, caught, it just caught fire, and everyone began to invite everyone else, and so they had to build this massive tabernacle to house all these people. 
And by the age of 22, he was the most popular preacher of his day. Spurgeon preached to 20,000 people every Sunday for 20 years in the Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle. So it was such an amazing thing to be able to go to where uh, this called the Prince of Preachers uh, shared the word of God and God used him to set an entire generation on fire. And even to this day, sermons inspire so many others. In fact, I was reading through some of his sermons on the parable of the sower. And you can see his heart for the lost come through in this particular passage as he preaches. Your business is to preach to all of them. To proclaim the gospel of the whole creation. And if there happens to be some who prove to be like the hard path to the good seed, effectively resisting the gospel, it's still necessary that they should be in the audience. Can you hear that? Can you hear that heart for the hard soil there? He's saying, there's not one of us who can stand at the door of this tabernacle and go, yeah, yeah, you look like you're going to listen. No, 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 you look like you're resistant. Yeah, yeah, go ahead and come on in. I don't think you're going to pay any attention. You stay out. No, he's saying, regardless of how hard a soil is, everyone deserves to hear the gospel. Even if the seeds are just bouncing off the top, everyone deserves to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will some resist? Yes. Some will go their entire life being given multiple chances and never, ever repent or turn their hearts over to the Lord. But it's not our job to determine who gets to hear. It's our job to sow the seed of the gospel. And everyone else has the opportunity to choose. So imagine my joy in getting invited into the tabernacle with the rest of our master's cohort. And we were ushered in by an elder who serves there, currently ministers there to this day. And we sat in the pews and I got to see the pulpit where uh, Spurgeon preached from and, and to be able to see the scripture in the back, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth and, and just that heart of evangelism. And so I could hear as, elder, as the elder began to talk to us, I could hear his heart for evangelism was very much still there. But he was very, you could tell he was weary from the war. He was weary from the war for souls. He was tired it, 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 the glory days were past. They were still reaching people in London. But you could tell that he was tired and felt like, um, like London was lost. Like he said as much. He said, London's on its last leg. He said, um, and he said, I wouldn't be surprised if next year this whole thing falls apart. We're like, whoa. He, now they're still reaching people. God's still using them. But in the course of his speech to us and explaining what was going on, he made a list, whether he knew it or not, of people that were beyond reach. People whose ground was so hard, they simply would not receive the gospel. On that list, as I picked up, included mostly young people who had no interest in church, um, agnostics, atheists, Muslims, and people of other religions, and people um, that played instruments. Oh, yeah. Churches that play instruments, we got lumped on that list because according to him, we were leading the next generation to the devil. Um, so all of us in our cohort, of course, are a part of churches like ours that have instruments. And, and so it was really interesting to all of a sudden be on a list of people that were beyond reach. And I, I'm like, well, how did I end up on that list? And I, I even read Spurgeon uh, later on. I'm like, this, what, how did Spurgeon feel about instruments? And, and if, I guess he didn't actually like instruments either, but very important in his teaching, he said, but if someone else wants to worship God that way, that's between them and God. I'm going to focus on reaching people with the gospel of Jesus. And so you saw where God had moved in an evangelistic way in all these years before. God was still using this church, but they had sectioned off a whole group of people who were too hard to receive the gospel. And my heart was grieved as I left that, and I thought, God, is this true? 
Could London be really that far gone? And I began to do some research. And according to uh, many articles, including this one in the London Telegraph, the elder at Spurgeon's church wasn't exaggerating. Each sentence that's been taken shows the collapse of religion to be the biggest social trend in Britain. As atheism and apathy combine, the most recent surveys show that 70% of 16 to 29-year-olds in the UK identify with no religion, and just 7% call themselves Anglican, which is the official church over there. And I realized, oh my gosh, not only is it not exaggerating, but sociologically, America is only a few years behind this moral slide, this cultural slide that we see Europe in. And it began, it was like a wake-up call to me as I realized, God, you brought me here to this place where you had moved once in a mighty way. And now I'm hearing that this place is pretty much gone. God, you're giving me a foreshadowing, if you will, of where we might be in America if things do not change. And it was after that meeting where we went to uh, St. Paul's Cathedral. And if you wanted to go to the very top and get the very best view, it was over 800 stairs. I was happy with 300. 300 was good. I thought that view was good. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit would say, nope, keep climbing. I liked 500. 500 was nice. Nope, keep going. So finally I get to the top and I'm praying, Lord, help me to live because I'm out of breath. (laughs) But as I'm looking out over the city of London, uh, it was like the Lord just reminded me, John, when you're on the ground like the elder at Spurgeon's church, you're getting tired in the war and you lose perspective. Sometimes you need to be lifted up above and realize that I am still moving. I have not given up on this place. And as I began to pray over London town, I began to pray over England, I began to get God's heart and I was reminded of this important truth. We are at war for sinners, not with sinners. We are at war. Make no mistake about that. But it's for sinners, not with them. You see, if we mix that up, then you and I end up fighting against the very people that God has called us to fight for. The very ones that he came to die for. And you can see this is God's heart as as he explains to the disciples in Matthew 13. He says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. Matthew 13 verse 18 says, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes. Remember we described the birds that would come and and take the seeds because they're just sitting on top. The the seeds representing the good news of Jesus Christ. They would just come and swoop. Well, he's explaining what the the birds represented. These, These things from the air coming. It's the devil. It's the evil one coming and snatching away what was sown in their heart. And this is the seed sown along the path. I don't know about you, but I've always read this kind of as a, you know, quaint little story about a, a parable with a, a farmer with bad aim, you know, who just happens to waste some seed on some hard ground. And yet, as I began to study it in preparation for this series, I understood I've been misunderstanding it altogether. That God is including each of these soils and each of these souls are ones that he died for. They matter to him and he's thrown the seed there because he believes no one is beyond reach. And he, rather than just being like it's quaint little farmer's tale, it's actually a call for you and I to wake up that we are at war for souls. You can see scripture interpreting scripture as we understand how the devil comes and how we're fighting to fight against him in Ephesians chapter 6, 11 through 12, when it says to us to put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against sinners. Does it say that? No, what does it say? 
You can take, take your stand against who? The devil. We aren't to take our, when it says take your stand, it's literally to face your enemy. We've been making the enemy the very people that we're supposed to be saving. And he's saying, no, no, no. We take our stand against the devil and his schemes. Now this word scheme is, it's a powerful word. It means deceit, craftiness, and sleight of hand. Like when a musician is working a crowd, he's getting you to look at something over here so he can do his trick over here. And what the enemy has done with the church, he's done some sleight of hand that you and I aren't aware of, that over the course of time, you and I are fighting against the very people we're supposed to be fighting for. And the enemy has performed a great trick because now we're at war with the very people we're supposed to be bringing salvation to. What? He's brilliant. He's not omniscient like our God, but he is smart and he knows how to trick us. It says here, as he continues, take your stand against these schemes. I, I'm going to be revealing some of those schemes as we go along here today, but it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Go ahead and uh, elbow the person next to you. That's who he's talking about. That's not your enemy. Uh, you guys may have argued on your way to church today. It happens. Hey, but they're not your enemy. Your kids are not your enemy. Your spouse is not your enemy. Your neighbor is not your enemy. Your boss, I know, your boss isn't your enemy. Your IRS agent is not your enemy. <laughs> it, was, it was so funny because I said that in the last night service and, and I, a, a woman came out after service and she's like, I'm an IRS agent. <laughs> and I just gave her a hug. I'm like, you need some love, huh? You're not our enemy. She's like, I know, I know, I'm not your enemy. And you know, no matter how much we get in arguments and we get frustrated with the people in our lives, people are not our enemy. The enemy is our enemy. And if he can keep us distracted, then guess what the devil doesn't have to do? He doesn't have to do a thing. We're doing all the work for him. He can just stand back and go, oh, this is great. All the people that are supposed to be working for them are working against them. Ha, you guys just keep it up. And yet God is saying here, no, no, you gotta focus. You gotta focus on your real enemy. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There it is. It's talking about how there's something going on in the heavens. It's that bird flying down to take the seed. And you and I are the ones that aren't, we're, we haven't been given the armor to pound the ground. We've been given the armor to defend the ground. We have been given the armor of God not to go, but they are saying bad words, but they're thinking bad things, but I don't like the way they vote, but I don't like the way they live. Let me ask you this question. Does hard ground get softer by pounding it? No, it gets harder. And then what happens is the very hands that are supposed to be bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ are the very hands that are making it harder for them to receive it. And you and I need to be reminded that we have been called to fight on behalf of this ground, not against it. We need to be reminded that Christian, those who don't know Christ are not going to act like Christians. They haven't met him yet. The only reason that you and I have changed in the way that we live is because we've met Christ and he changes us. He shows us how to live. He begins to transform us from that hard ground to the soft soil. That, but it doesn't happen overnight. And that's the second, second thing that you and I need to, need to realize is that this war for souls, it won't be won in a day, but it will be won daily. This is a long-term commitment that God has called us to. God has called us to fight on behalf of those around us. And, and he goes on to explain what that looks like in Ephesians 6, verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, 
by the way, it's here. When the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, walk away. No, what are we supposed to do after we've done everything? We're supposed to keep standing? How long do I have to keep standing? Until that ground changes. You see? This is a long-term commitment. God has called us to fight this battle on a long-term basis. And, it, and he says here that after, after you've done everything, but I've tried everything, John. I've invited them to like 500 Easter services and, and 600 Christmas services. And, and if I invite them to the Nick Wojciech thing and they still don't come, I'm done. But it's saying here, you don't get to be. We don't get to be done. We take our stand on behalf of this ground no matter how hard it is, no matter how many times they've looked you in the eyes and say, I don't believe in your God. I don't think your Jesus is real. I'm never going to go to church no matter how hard that ground is. This is the ground Jesus died for. Yes. Right. I just want you to picture how hard that ground was as the holy, sinless, pure Savior is on the cross and his blood is dripping on hard ground. It doesn't get any harder than a group of people saying, we hate you. Let your blood be upon us and our future generations. And yet, get this. While they're shouting, crucify him. Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In that seed... That blood, that grace, if it can soften hard ground like that, there's not a single person in your life and mine that is beyond the reach of that blood. That's right. Amen. So if Jesus didn't give up on us, what right do we have to give up on the battle for the souls around Amen. us? How many of us are here Right here, right now, because someone refused to give up on us. No matter, I mean, you resisted over and over again. You said you didn't believe in that thing. You said Christianity was a crutch. And yet someone in your life and mind says, I'm not giving up on you. I'm going to keep praying for you. I'm going to keep inviting you. How many of us are here because we had someone like that in our lives? Raise your hand right now. Yeah, all throughout, all of us, all throughout this building, we are here because someone fought for the hard ground of our soul and refused to give up. And, and I saw this, I saw this uh, firsthand, such a contrast to what I heard the elder at Spurgeon's church say as I went to go visit this church called Holy Trinity Brompton. It's an Anglican church there. And uh, Vicar, um, Nikki Gumbel, I love that word, Vicar. And if you guys want to call me Vicar, you can't. But you have to say it that way, Vicar. Okay, so anyways, um, you go there and right in, front, right in front of the building, you are just blown away by the statue of this prodigal son uh, being embraced by this father. Another one of Jesus' famous parables. And that was so much the heart of this church, to welcome back those that are beyond reach, to welcome back those that have been rejected by church and feel like God would never have them back. And even as you're, you're walking in and out, you see that, who are you going to invite? And they use this thing called the Alpha Course. It's a 10-week course where they invite people that literally, the people that they invite are everyone that the elder at Spurgeon's church said are beyond reach. They invite atheists agnostics, young people, 
people that hate church, people that hate God, people of other religions that don't even uh, believe in, in the God of the Bible. They invite them all. And over the course of 10 weeks, they have a safe place where they can have a meal and they can address the, the most difficult questions. In fact, the, the very first session is Christianity, boring, untrue, and irrelevant. Let's talk. I'm like, wow. That's incredible. And so it was started in 1977, and now over 100 countries, over 100 languages, over 24 million people have gone through this course. And from, from every denomination, Anglican, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, Eastern, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic churches, everybody that has used this course has seen people come through this because why? They're committed not to this short-term thing of, hey, if you don't decide right now, we're done with you, but this long-term process of building relationship over the course of the weeks. And the coolest thing was is that the Sunday we were there, we got to see 14 people get water baptized in their service. Oh, and by the way, we do have a water baptism coming up in two weeks. It's our last one of the year, and I would love to be able to crown this year by uh, being a part of your public declaration of faith. There's a flyer in your bulletin that you can fill out and drop off at the kiosk if you would like to be baptized. It would be a powerful thing, but as each of these uh, people got up and shared on the stage, most of them came to know Christ through the Alpha Course. And they were far from the Lord. This one mother got up and, and, uh, and she had gone through a bitter divorce with her husband. And all she wanted was to, basically, she wanted to kill her husband. And uh, then she came to know Christ. And God began to just soften the soil of her soul so much that she stood in front of the church and just said to everybody, I just want the best for my husband, even though he hurt me brutally and deeply. I just want the best. I want him to come to know Christ. And then get this. He, she invites up her son, a 20-something son. And the son had gone through the course with her. And Vicar uh, Gumble there was saying, hey, so what did you get out of this? He's like, well, I don't believe in Jesus yet, but I have seen Jesus and what he has done through my mom, and she's completely different. And I'm so thankful that she has this church. And I, my mind was blown. They invite up a person who doesn't know Jesus, and he feels so safe in saying that, that he is freely admitting, I'm not there yet. But I see that Jesus is real because of what I see in my mom. And I have ne I've never seen anything like that. But that is the power that I believe is going to change that hard ground in England and is going to change the hard ground in America. It's that place where the church of Jesus Christ allows people to belong before they believe because you and I are in this for the long haul. That you and I are in this to build relationship, not just get someone to sign on the dotted line. That you and I are sowing love instead of impatience. Let's just go and admit. We're talking about the hard ground of sinners, but I think a lot of our ground has been hardened through impatience. And we've got people in our lives and we're just done. I'm tired of inviting you. I'm tired of praying for you. It just seems like you're getting worse. And so instead of sowing love into their lives, we're sowing impatience. It's never going to happen. It's never going to change. If you don't ask Jesus Christ into your heart in the next couple of weeks, I'm done. And yet what, what I learned from Holy Trinity Brompton is that you and I, we don't have this luxury. We don't have the luxury of sowing impatience because our God was not impatient with us. It's not in your notes, but 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Look at that. God is literally putting heaven on hold 
for his return for his people so that just one more soil of one more soul can come to know him as the Savior. And that's what happened in our lives. And wouldn't we have that same heart for those around us? For our aunties and our uncles and our neighbors and our friends and our sons and our daughters and our coworkers and our bosses and our IRS agents. No matter how hard that soil is, Jesus is saying, hold on. One more day, they might come to know me. Because I've got Christians in their life that are standing in warfare on behalf of their soul and refuse to give up on them. Let's hold off a little bit longer because I think they're going to come around. That's the heart of our God. Could that be a heart too? Instead of sowing impatience, we would sow love. That that we would not give up the fight, not give into that scheme of the devil that says, hey, you know what, they're beyond saving. You're just wasting your time. Just spend your time over here in the soft soil. But Jesus died for all the soils. All of them. As I was there in England, you know, we live in a country that's, you know, 200 years old. I'm there in, in a country where it's been there. The church has been going for thousands. I look at a building that's, a thousand years old, the Saxon building. And I'm looking at this and it's just like God is saying, hey John, why are you being so impatient? I've been working long before you got here and I'm gonna be working long after you're not here anymore. Would you just look at what I'm doing? I am, I'm working the long game, John. You're working the short game. You're putting people on a time limit. And yet I've been working this ground, even this hard ground, so that even just one more person could come to know me. And I, I don't want to make sure that you and I have that same heart to see that the long-term goal of our God is that every single one of the people in our lives would come to know him as their Lord and Savior. Can we be committed to that? As James says, be patient then. James 5, verse 7, be patient then, brothers and sisters. Until when? How long do I have to be patient for? Right? Until when? Well, when's that? Exactly. We don't know how long that is. We don't know when he's coming back. We just read from 2 Peter that he's, he's uh, uh, keeping from coming back until as many people can know him as possible. So that's the point. You and I don't get to put a time limit on patience. We don't get to put a time limit on the work of God and softening the hard soil. He's saying be patient until the Lord's coming. And, and then he uses the example. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. Patiently waiting for autumn and spring rains. You too. Be patient. And there it is. Just like Ephesians 6. Stand firm because the Lord's coming is near and don't grumble against one another brothers and sisters or you will be judged the judge is standing at the door who's the judge in this scenario it ain't us and yet when we get tired just like the elder at Spurgeon's church we become judge jury and executioner we begin to think that we can read who is beyond saving I'm sorry there's only one who can do that and it's the one who can see into the soul. That's not me. That's not you. And our job is what? To judge? Nope. Our job is to stand and to fight and to wait and to contend and to invite and to plant and to cultivate and believe. That's our job as Christians. His job is to judge. Our job is to contend and fight on behalf of the hard soils in our lives. So can we also resist the scheme of the devil that's called friendly fire in war? He says, don't grumble against 
brothers and sisters. And now, again, the devil, he's not omniscient, but he's pretty smart. And he's got all these churches fighting against each other. The reason why, even though our cohort, we all use instruments and worship the Lord, none of us argued with the elder about that. None of us started pulling out our theological truths and how we believe that God can use all instruments for his glory. None of us went there because we could see that this man was doing the very best he could to reach as many as possible. And we asked how we could pray for him. And he said, please pray because I feel like the church is anonymous. And no one even knows that we're here. Isn't that amazing? This large structure that was the epicenter of revival in the 1800s. And he's saying we're anonymous. And our hearts went out to pray for him. And yet what the enemy would love for us to do is to just start going after each other. Well, our church does it this way. Well, we do it this way. Well, we believe in instruments. Well, we don't. Listen, the important thing isn't how they're doing it. The important thing is that they are doing it. And the enemy just said, we're doing the work for the enemy. We're standing, he's standing back going, ha, this is awesome. All the churches are fighting against each other while the world looks on and goes, what? Love of Jesus? I'm sorry. I'm not seeing it. Listen, right now, all over this island, God is moving all over this world. God is moving, and he's moving in, in varied and different ways, different churches to reach different kinds of people. But let's celebrate in that. Let's not compete with each other. Let's collaborate with each other so we can reach as many as possible for, before his return. That's what the Lord would have us do. So let's not fall for that scheme of the devil that somehow we're in competition with each other. And the final scheme that I want to stand against is that idea that prayer and praise doesn't change a thing. But I want to tell you very firmly that I believe the way we win this war for souls is through prayer and praise. You see, it doesn't make sense to the natural mind. The natural mind goes, what are you, who are you talking to? When you just, are you talking to the air? What, what do you, why do you guys gather together and, and sing? Who are you singing to? Where's this God of yours? Right? It doesn't, doesn't make any sense to the natural mind. This whole idea of spiritual warfare doesn't make any sense to the natural mind. But we understand as believers that we are body, soul, and spirit. And that there's a spiritual battle, a spiritual reality going on that's just as real as the things that we can see, taste, and touch. And that God is calling us to this place where we don't fight with the weapons of, of warfare that are carnal, but are mighty for the pulling down of spiritual strongholds. And those weapons... Some of them are prayer and praise, and that's why James calls us to do, to use those very things in James chapter 5, Deuteronomy verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? You should feel bad. No. What's it say to do if you're in trouble? Was it? Now, why would he tell us to do that if nothing happens? Are you in trouble? Here, just waste your time talking to the air. No, no. Something happens. Something is set in motion. In the spirit realm, when you and I pray in the name of Jesus, if you're in trouble, there's one place to go, and it's the one who can solve your problem better than anyone else. His name is Jesus. Is, is anyone happy? What are you supposed to do? Think happy thoughts? No, sing praises. Sing the songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. And look, here, here comes full circle. So good. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Whoever turns a sinner. This, that, look at that wording. It's like cultivating that hard ground. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That's our mission. That's what we're fighting for. 
to save people from an eternal death, a Christless eternity. And how do we do that? According to Scripture, praise and prayer. That's how we do it. The hard ground gets changed. Praise softens. Prayer deepens so that this hard ground can receive the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not taking our, our, our hands and we're beating people up for not acting like Jesus when they don't know Jesus. No, we're using this to chase off the enemy and to contend for this soil until they receive the Savior. That's our job. This is how we fight. And you and I are going to go to battle for these next couple weeks. In your bulletin, you see two cards. Praise card and a prayer card. And you and I are going to go to battle together. And we're going to see God soften the soil. We're going to see God deepen the soil. And guess whose soul he starts with? Ours. In fact, I would say that as we pray for those who are hardened against the Lord in our lives, God will soften our hearts towards them. You know that happens, right? The ones you're really angry at right now that you're convinced are your enemy, you start praying for them, guess what happens? You get God's heart for them. And he begins to show you ways that he's working in their lives. So maybe you would fill this out. Starting today, you can drop these off in the bucket on your way out with our ushers. We'll be standing at the exits, but you can fill this out for those people in your life that you've given up on or you feel like they're never going to come to know Christ. Let's start praying for them. See what happens. I'm praying for our, our uh, paddling team going across the Molokai Channel right now, and that God would keep them safe and that we'd win. That's okay to pray too, right? What about praise? How's God already answered prayers in your life? I, you know what I'm writing on my praise card? Pastor Wayne is officially cancer-free. Can we give God glory to that? Yes. That's what I'm writing on there. Instantly, our, the faith in the room is built. And so over the next couple of weeks during our ministry time, we're going to take these that you turn in and we're going to actually pray through them. Of course, it'll be anonymous up here, but we're going to join in corporate spiritual warfare. We're going to pray on each other's behalf that what you fill out there, we're going to be praying over them. We're going to be sharing your praise reports so that the faith in this room can be built up. Because if this is the way that we receive the harvest, then you and I are getting to work. And we are going to take the devil down. We're not fighting against each other anymore. We're not fighting against those that we've been called to fight for. But we are fighting with the spiritual weapons of praise and prayer. Because it changes things. And as we close, you'll see how it changed the lives of Ozzy and Shantaz. You may recognize Shantaz as one of our worship leaders, but I want you to note as you listen to their story, how God used prayer and praise to soften the hard ground of their own soils, and to help them face one of the hardest situations anybody can face. Take a look at this. It started with my oldest daughter. She was going to the same church that I grew up. At that time, we lived in town. And so my auntie would drive all the way to town just to pick her up, to take her to church. And so one day she said, can you guys bring her because I'm not feeling well. So that first time we dropped her off, I'm not kidding, that night before we were like hung over. And so when we took her to church, they were like, come inside. 
you know, come hang out with us. And we're like, no. Then the next week, it happened again. My auntie asked. And then um, this time, he said, yes, I want to go to church. They did an altar call and he accepted. And I think that, you know, acceptance, that changed everything. You know, the F-bomb started going away slowly. The language started going away slowly. Um, and we started to dig deeper and putting them in between our marriage, putting them in our finances, in our health, in between our kids. God started to open up doors for me. Well, accepting Jesus in your life doesn't mean everything's gonna be okay. I would say around 2011 is when everything just came down crashing. Letting the enemy come in between our marriage at that time, it just like rippled and tore us apart, tore our kids apart, tore our business apart. I remember one night, it was just me. The kids were sleeping and I just went on my knees again and I said, Lord, you said that this was the man that I'm supposed to marry, then why is this happening to, to me? And then he said, I'm still with you, I never left you. You know, just be strong and you have to fight for your family. I kind of realized when me and my wife made the vow together, that was also with the Lord. God kind of revealed to me that every time I put on my ring, that I'm, I'm, yes, I'm married, but I also got that covenant with Him. So yes, we had our ups and downs, even though we had the Lord in our marriage. And I believe that we were meant to be together and we just stuck it out. pulling up closer and my mom just um, dashed out but she came right in the front of my car and I just like immediately slammed on the brakes put it in park and just left my car on the road and then um, I, I ran out I just glanced over um, into my mom's uh, driveway and saw somebody on the ground You know, after the incident, that whole night, I couldn't sleep until I just, I said, God, you have control. Whatever your plan is for us and for the children, then let it be. Maybe a week later, I felt just a wave of just peace that just came over me. And God said, you know what, I'm still here. I never left, and um, we're gonna get through this. I just automatically thought that something happened to my sister, that I would definitely take care of the kids. 
to support these kids is, that's my kuleana. I try to you know, steer them in the right direction. We try to send them to better schools. You know, all, all the things that I didn't have growing up. The structure also in putting God first and everything that they do. Today, they are striving. They're just amazing. You know, during all of this, I would always feel like I'm missing something, you know. And that missing um, piece for me is, is worship. Every time i in that mood that I don't feel worthy or that what I'm doing is not good, and I can feel that peace that I need, that comfort, you know, and know that God is by my side. We are living testimonies in how big God's gates can open. And it's amazing what we thought was impossible. That God, whatever you're going through, God's gonna open up the doors. And He did it for us. Just the amount of blessing that God can bless you with, we've never thought or even imagined that that could ever happen to us. If you wonder what God can do in your life, Try him and see what he can do, because he can do amazing things. No matter how hard the ground, Jesus died for that ground. He bled for that ground. From before they came to know Christ, and their marriage was on the rocks, and their sister suffers a tragic death and they adopt their sister's children. All along that way, God led them through prayer and praise. No matter how hard your life has been up to this point, God wants to meet you here.